Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Schreiber. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, if the men's Grand Slam title race were to end today, which it's not, but if it were, then it would be won by 35-year-old Rafael Nadal, who earlier on this morning <laughs> won his 21st Grand Slam singles title, coming back from two sets to love down to beat Daniil Medvedev 7-5 in the fifth set. And more than that, he came back from a quite possibly career-ending foot condition that saw him on crutches as recently as a couple of months ago. He was staring retirement in the face. And weeks later, here he is holding Grand Slam title number 21. I'm Catherine Whitaker. Alongside me in Melbourne is Matt Roberts. In sunny Solly Hull is David Law. And it is somehow our responsibility to try and summarise and make sense for you um, of a quite extraordinary night of sport. And we have to do all this, some of us anyway, at 5am. <laughs> Because that's what time it is, folks. For David, it's a it's a lovely six p.m. How does that feel, yeah. David? The only problem being that I've been up since four thirty a.m. because I'm still on that body clock a bit. But no, you win. Five a.m. is the latest in our nine hundred and fifty-two episode history of covering the Australian Open for the last ten years. It's quite extraordinary, Catherine. That was an amazing intro, and even though I've just watched every single minute of the match. I found myself shaking my head and laughing as you read that out. Well, you didn't read it out as you as you described what we've just witnessed and what it means in the context of the sport. I can't really believe it. I don't. I mean, I'll try my best to 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 give you something useful on this podcast, but I just can't really believe what I've seen today. I I, I wasn't expecting this, and I and I would have thought 
at so many different points of it from not believing he would make the quarterfinals to not thinking he had a chance if it went long to him being two sets to love down and coming back against Daniel Medvedev to win in five. No, no, I can't, I can't quite take it in yet. It's the circus of life. (laughs) (laughs) That is the true. Yeah, if you're listening to us for the first time, if you're a Rafael Nadal fan or whatever and you've just wanted to to listen to some people deep diving on his win and just wanting to revel in it for a moment and you've searched for tennis in your podcast app and you've found us, I really hope you're enjoying it. But I do encourage you not to go back and listen to any of our previous takes about how this final would go, some of which I delivered on Australian television this morning in footage that I wish could be destroyed. (laughs) But alas, the internet makes that impossible Um, because we, it's not that we didn't give Nadal a chance in this match. You know, none of us ever would underestimate the will of Rafael Nadal. I think it was the will of Rafael Nadal that, that made us give him any chance in this match, quite frankly. But what we absolutely didn't really give him a chance of was winning in the long haul, winning down the straight, winning in five and a half hours, which, by the way, isn't even that close to the longest Australian Open final that Rafael Nadal has played, which is, (laughs) you know... That's a whole other universe of absurd. The other Australian Open final that Nadal played where he had to sit on a chair during the ceremony because he was physically unable to hold up his body. That is what happened today. And, you know, he he didn't hold back in describing how much that match destroyed him physically today. I do not know what kind of shape he's going to be in tomorrow. He doesn't, or rather later today, he doesn't know that either. We have, Matt and I just had a media alert through saying that he's going to be a doing a photo shoot at 2pm tomorrow, location TBC. I reckon it'll be quite close to the accommodations of Rafael Nadal. First ever champion's <laughs> photo shoot from his bed. <laughs> I mean, that's nine hours' time, isn't it? And the bloke is not going to be asleep yet. No chance. No, well, he was impressed about, what, an hour ago? About two hours, D- I think. Two hours ago. Time has ceased, ceased to mean anything. Um, can you tell folks that we're procrastinating uh, with having to actually describe the match? Because I I don't know what we're going to do about this. I don't know how. Matt is such a diligent, thoughtful note-taker throughout the days at Grand Slams, throughout matches. He can always be relied upon to document a match stage by stage. I have a hot take at the end of it, and I'm all about the recency bias, and this is how I feel at the end. Matt has his thoughtful, diligent notes, and they're brilliant, and they make us all look good. I think those notes stopped after the second set, didn't they, Matt? (laughs) And... uh, are thus rendered irrelevant. It was going so well. There were notes, there was tactical analysis, there were key points. And then, yeah, just halfway through, I stopped being able to have thoughts, let alone write them down. I stopped being able to process everything. It was The whole thing was like a sort of out-of-body experience as Nadal was mounting his comeback. And 
Yeah, as you said, the notes from the first two sets, okay, we can talk about them, of course, <laughs> but gosh, it just became so much more than that and so difficult to sort of comprehend and wrap your head around that, yeah, hands up, my note-taking process was a victim of Nadal's extraordinary comeback. It, it was so exciting, David, that the bloke sitting next to me in the press box put down his crossword that he was doing for the first two whole sets of that match. And look, okay. Wasn't it, Briggs, was it? It, <laughs> it wasn't Briggs. Oh, let's not get started on Briggs. He's had a night of absolute despair. I think this scenario for tennis writers, for sports writers, is a nightmare and a very sort of a nightmare of conflicting emotions because obviously they want the story. You want the story as a journalist, don't you? I mean, we're just buzzing about the story. It's huge. And it would have been a brilliant story if Medvedev had won. He was going for history as well. But this Nadal story, it's leading, you know, okay, it's, well, no, it's 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 a prime news hour, isn't it, in, in the UK? On my mm. BBC News app, it is the top news story, not the top sports yeah. story. You know, it's massive. But also, they didn't know the result. Presumably, all of those writers in that box had sort of two separate pieces on the go that they were rewriting mm. with every single point. That is how frequently it was all shifting. And you could you could almost feel it shift. The, the weight of everything, I could felt like it was weighing upon my chest. And I was, you know, at a at a safe distance from it all. So goodness knows how how the players and and their teams and everything felt. Well I mean it was it was the most delicious storyline possible even before the match just because you'd got Nadal's whole journey to get to this point you'd got him able to break the tie in such a surprising fashion at the Australian Open where we didn't expect that to happen with Federer and Djokovic all of them on 20 Grand Slam titles and you'd got the disruptor the tennis troll opposite him the man who'd stopped Djokovic from doing exactly that just a few months earlier so it was it was just delicious, even in terms of the kind of the setting. And I mean, I'm I'm like you, Catherine. I'm not a note taker. I I go into commentary boxes and I I barely keep the score because I just want to feel what's going on and I just want to react. I don't want to be too too wrapped up in details, which I think can be sometimes a, f a failing of mine. But I decided today I'm going to take. But it's notes. okay, David, because we have Matt until until yeah, well, until right. Matt malfunctions. <laughs> Well, I, I, I kept the most detailed notes that I think I've ever kept in a final during that match. I was jotting things down, thoughts and moments and things that occurred to me. And I got through until set number four, the fifth juice and the seventh break point. And then it just stops. <laughs> and I don't know why it stops, but I think it's because of the, the, the awe in which I was watching the tennis match. And that's when just human reaction took over. And, you know, it's funny how when you're describing, trying to figure out, well, how do we get, how do you get sense of this and, and the absurdity of it all from your opening? We, we got ticked off by Roger Federer in an Instagram post after the match today, in which in the middle of it, he says, never underestimate a great champion. And that's that was part of his congratulations to to Rafael Nadal, and I was thinking, you know, really, that's what I feel like I I have done uh, pre-match pre to this because 
and or pre-tournament, you know, and 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 probably a little bit of a, a loaded message in there from him as well. You know, don't don't count me out yet because I I don't think I'm done. But I mean, yeah, um, you you could you could write a book about every every set of this match because it was there was so much going on. Well, should we give a really tactical, detailed analysis of the first three sets then, folks? That's 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 what we're able to offer you. And then we'll give you emotional hot takes on the uh, the final set and a half. I mean, it feels now we're talking. it feels to me like this is a I mean, obviously there were many millions of of parts and subparts to this match. So much to it. But it feels to me like there was um, a fault line in the middle of the match and there was before and there was after and that fault line was two sets to love to Medvedev, 3-2. So Nadal serving 2-3, it's on serve, but Nadal is love 40 down. At this stage, I am in the outer ring of the Rod Laver Arena having um, taken what I thought was a really well-timed loo break but turned out to be a really badly timed loo break. So I actually watched this Nadal save from Love 40 uh, on a screen while making conversation with a very excited podcast fan, friend of the podcast, who admitted to having stalked me uh, in order to have that conversation. So I was all, um, (laughs) I don't think I got her name actually, but she was very lovely. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your lovely words. And sorry that I was a little bit distracted by the fact that Nadal, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, was pulling off the the biggest escape act <laughs> in in certainly my recent memory. I, I I'm so wary of being too hyperbolous because we are just in the moment. But my goodness me, because as I said to Matt when when we reflected on that score line, the score was actually a lot less close in reality than two sets to love and three, two suggested Nadal had been hanging on by his fingertips since the first game of the match. Yeah, he had really, I mean, he didn't have a clear way of winning points, I think against Medvedev early on. And it was such, such a stark contrast to his, match against Berrettini where there was such a clear strategy such a clear approach and everything about his game was working and he was just mesmerizing in those first two sets against Berrettini it was very different in the early stages against Medvedev I I was watching these rallies thinking how is Nadal gonna hit through him how is he gonna win points reliably against Medvedev and Medvedev obviously has his amazing serve as well and he was rattling through service games and Nadal was fighting in his first two service games I think each of them was lengthy you know we'd we'd played about 20 minutes and Nadal had been serving for you know basically 19 of them and just to just to keep it on serve and then Medvedev broke and broke again to win the first set and you know, it was pretty comfortable, really. It was. It, I was worried it was going to get awkward. I was worried it was going to be another 2019 final situation where it's a yeah. match we've hyped up and Nadal's just going to be on the receiving end of a bit of a hammering, really. Now, the whole time it was going on, this bit of a thrashing, really, in the first set, Nadal was at least trying things. He was 
tactically playing around with his game and playing around with Medvedev. You know, he was using slice balls. He was trying to come to the net. He was occasionally looping. He was he was doing a lot of different things. It was a it was a fascinating watch. It mm. was it was it was like chess. You know, it was sort of tennis chess between these two physical specimens. You know, it was it was it sort of had everything to that degree. But Medvedev was just was just the better player. And that even I think in the second set when Nadal had leads, you know, he was four one up, he was five three up, he had a set point, he led in the tie break. So despite all that, it felt to me like Nadal was clinging on. You know, even though he was in the lead, it felt like Medvedev was the better player, was the one in in control. And when he eventually took that second set, honestly like you said, David, I underestimated Nadal in that moment because all, all tournament we'd seen him fade physically as matches went on, certainly in the quarterfinal and in the semifinal. And I just thought, well, you know, if that's the best Nadal's got to give today, it's it's a commendable effort because he has, he has put his heart onto this court and he has tried things tactically, but it hasn't worked. And he's two sets to love down and he's facing Medvedev, this is just basically an impossible task now for Nadal. And yeah, the least plausible scenario for me <laughs> going into this was Nadal winning from two sets down. I just I just couldn't fathom how that was going to be possible. But but just to give us all a tiny modicum of, of credit and and still, still, I would suggest don't go back and listen to any of our preview material of this final. Um Rafael Nadal hadn't come from two sets to love down as great a fighter as he is in in a Grand Slam match since 2007. Now, I know that there are lots of different ways that statistic can and should be read. He he hasn't gone two sets to love down in many Grand Slam matches uh, in the last 15 years. But nonetheless, he had not done it since 2007, let alone against the best hardcore player in the world at the moment, you know, playing in dazzling form. Daniil Medvedev was not making errors. He was hitting to a perfect line in length. It was right out of the Djokovic playbook. He just, you know, he didn't need to go for too much because he was just in control of the match. Yes, Nadal was coming up with the odd bit of brilliance, but... Medvedev could shrug it shrug it off and go, you cannot do that every point. He was doing it, you know, enough for it to just about be exciting and to be a respectable scoreline. But you always had the feeling that you cannot win a match that way. As Matt said, it's just not repeatable enough. And yet still, the statistic that you're looking at that's doing the rounds on the internet and social media is that he has not done this for 15 years. And in those 15 years, he has been his physical peak at various periods. And by his own admission, even in the post-match press conference today, he is not at his physical peak. He said, I was not ready to play a match like I played tonight. He said, I haven't been practicing. I haven't been able to practice like I wanted to. We saw him suffering from heat stroke a couple of rounds ago. You know, it's not necessarily the foot. It's a chain chain reaction from the foot injury, which is that he's not been able to practice enough and get in the physical shape endurance-wise for these kinds of matches. So that is my defence of our (laughs) terrible takes. Mental peak, though. 
Mm. Like, obviously, it was a physical achievement that Nadal did today, coming back from two sets down. But it's it's the, it's his mind mm. that blows me away. The the resolve, the will, the desire to stay in the match, the ability to hang in there and push at the right time. That was just a just a giant mental sporting performance from Nadal. Well, the third set was fascinating, I thought, for that reason. Because of what you've got to do at two sets to love down. You, he's gone off the court. He's basically shown what Medvedev has got, which is you think you've got him in a rally and he's really got you because you set him up. There were so many times Nadal set him up for the kind of point he wanted to play and then tried to finish it at the net and he ended up being passed. And I think Medvedev is an absolute master of ending up turning the tables with one passing shot, a few sort of big strides across the court and suddenly this amazing improvisation low down with the ground strokes, whether it's scooping a backhand down the line or whatever it might be. He, I think he's my, maybe the best at that. Um, and it reminded me in the second set because he uh, he created a lot of chances there, Nadal, and he should have won that second set in the end because of how creative he was. He won the 40-stroke rally with that absurd cross-court, short-angled, backhand chip, which, I mean, I was off my seat watching that uh, as, as they just stood there taking it all in and the crowd were on their feet. Um, and it reminded me of, uh, of eavesdropping a conversation many years ago between Jim Courier and Mats Verlander where they compared notes about moments in their careers when what they were able to do to other opponents suddenly stopped working. And that's what it felt like at this point, that everything Nadal's got has no effect on this guy. He's reached 35 years of age. He's up against somebody who's at his peak and who's kind of better at him on a hard court than he is at what he's trying to do. And so Nadal... And what Courier and Verlander were saying, and Courier used an example of a win over a very young Marit Safin in which Courier lost the first set six love in the Davis Cup. And he said, suddenly I had to just abandon my normal game and start chipping short slices, which is not my game at all. But I turned the tables. I found a way to win. And that's what Nadal started to try to do all the way through in, in those first couple of sets. And he so nearly did it. And when he's two sets to love down... My kids left the living room. They'd watched every single point up until that point, and that was an 84-minute set. We'd all, everybody had given up that, that that this was going to be a contest at this point. I think I certainly I was going to watch it all. I was going to watch the crowning moment from Daniel Medvedev. There's no chance that Rafael Nadal is coming back from two sets to love down. Is how I felt really. But it was very interesting to watch Nadal walk out onto the court after, for that third set. He suddenly looked like it was a new match. I mean, he had been perspiring in the first two sets in a really unhealthy-looking way. I mean, he 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 sweats a lot as it is, but they were having to come out with towels to tie to to clean up his sweat before he served because he was slipping on his own sweat, and it was like it was raining down on his toes. But they as had he to, sort they of had to do that for the first serve. time, David, in his first service game. Yeah, it was, yeah, it, and, it, you know, the kids would watch... The second game of the match, he was requiring a sweat mop. Yeah, I mean, the, he would hit a forehand and they'd show it in slow motion afterwards and the, and the kids would go, ah, as this sweat would go sort of slinging off his body. Um, but in that third set, I think I saw something from Nadal that I've never seen before. He's at 2-3, he's loved 40, saved the four break points with real defiance, brilliance, 
and and he got himself ahead at, at five four. And, and what happened was he's got Medvedev where he wants him in this set, and he's got himself a chance to win the set, and he misses a, a what is for him a straightforward shot. And he, for the first time I think I've ever seen, he looks over at a coach as if to say, what can I do? What more can I do? I, I, I don't know what to – he was panicking. He was sort of really worried about the situation just very momentarily. And you saw Carlos Moya just roll his hands over towards him as if to say, keep going. Don't stop. Don't, don't look back. Don't consider what's just happened. Was, and if you think of Nadal, was, um, was Ava Azraki stood stood beneath him, ready ready <laughs> to tell tales on him to the umpire. Well, I, t- I tell you, I mean, you know, it wasn't obviously a tactical thing. It was just an emotional thing because I've always thought Nadal is the best in the moment player I've ever seen, of able to put something behind him. But in that moment, he just looked so fed up. But he dusted himself down, and on the second set point. He won it, and he was back to two sets to one, and it really was game on at that point. And now we approach the portion of the match that nobody really remembers because it's all just a blur of emotion and anxiety and just cook for, 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 for Matt and me, and I'm sure to an extent, David, for, for you on the TV, I mean, the noise would have come across, but just cacophony and just the wildness of that atmosphere and it will come on to talk about the crowd um in relation to Medvedev later don't worry we will we will do that but just you know just as Rafael Nadal obviously smelt blood and sensed the opportunity so the crowd did as well and there was this tremendous sense of momentum and my resounding memory of the fourth set was Daniil Medvedev starting to make, or not starting to, continuously making completely bonkers decisions on the court. He'd gone about two and a half sets without making an error, just hitting this perfect laser-like length, you know, guiding the ball around the court, never really get, you know, the odd bit of bit of rufflement with the crowd because, you know, there were some calls between serves and when players were, or when in particular Daniel Medvedev was going to serve. But mostly it had been kept in a lid on. But set number four, you start to see him physically ail. I think he's, he's just a split second slow. But more than that, you start to see the shot selection just go haywire in the most dramatic, almost pretty laughable way there was some there was the odd laugh out loud moment from Daniil Medvedev and just just the absolute epitome of a brain cramp I think basically yeah there was some weird drop shots there was some moments where he you know sort of had the whole court open and he would hit it straight back at Nadal and obviously part of that is Nadal's anticipation I suppose but yeah I think Medvedev's decision making was was pretty suspect and was indicative of someone whose whose mind had been pretty scrambled just by Nadal's ability to stay in that match. And it's interesting what you say about the noise because, you know, tennis matches are so often, you know, silence and then noise, silence and then noise. My My overwhelming memory of that was just noise. I can't remember there being that much silence during the match and and maybe that's just because 
you know, the noise was so loud, it was sort of continuing to ring in your ear, even when it was quiet. But it was it was difficult to think straight. And I think, you know, possibly maybe Medvedev was feeling that as well. And obviously, we'll talk about the crowd. But yeah, it just makes it all the more remarkable to me that Nadal did make great decisions. Because I think actually Medvedev making bad decisions was was kind of indicative of the frenzy and of the moment and of everything that was going on around him. But it was Nadal's clear-headedness that was amazing. And and just, just the way the atmosphere in the stadium changed as Nadal started making his comeback. You know, Nadal's shots started having much more on them and started having more effect and started being more effective. And with that, I think, you know, the crowd sensed it. There was suddenly more noise. There was this couple sitting I don't know <laughs> 10 rows in front of us and at the end of the second set there they were standing up waving their Spanish flag so limply and so sort of pathetically that it you know they just were waving it because they had it with them you know it was like a sort of prop it was an apology it was so apologetic the wave it was we've brought this we know you need us but Oh, there's not much to wave about. But then come the fourth set, I mean, the guy had his guns out. He was fist pumping. He was he was brandishing his flag, you know, above his head. Just they sort of, I think, perfectly encapsulated the way that the the way that the feel of the match and the way that the crowd responded to the match just changed through that through that third and in particular I think the fourth set because even once Nadal won the third I still think Medvedev was was a pretty strong favorite in the match but it was the fourth set where really as you said Medvedev's decision making Medvedev's physical state became quite alarming for him and Nadal was just was just growing sort of taller by the moment and then after Nadal takes that fourth set, they both go off the court don't they and there's uh, there's a long enough break that both Matt and I could sneak out to the loo uh, without missing any of the tennis. So thank you, Nadal and Medvedev, for mm-hmm. for that loo break. Um, we all took a loo break together. <laughs> um, so they come back on the court and, you know, you'd already pointed out, David, I think all of our minds had gone to the fact that at this stage, it's a mirror image of the one previous Grand Slam final they'd played at the US Open in 2019. It's a... It's a reflection, isn't it? It was Nadal that took the opening two sets in that one. Medvedev fights back, takes it to five. And then so often there's that reset going into a fifth set, isn't there? And um, so it proved in New York in 2019. And it did feel like, okay, everything's everything is blank slate now from this point forward. Um, but Rafael Nadal did not feel that way because... He just picked up right where he left off and immediately started putting pressure on the Medvedev serve. He doesn't break, I don't think, at the first time of asking, but he does get quite an early break in that set. And um, he ended up losing that break while serving for the match. He got to 30 love up, didn't he, on his serve. I'm, I'm remembering this as I go, if that's not completely obvious. Um, and, uh, Matt was, I remember Matt was counting on his fingers. So when he went up to serve for the match, Matt had four fingers up. And then I think it was a, a service winner on the first point and Matt goes down to three fingers up. And then it was a, another fairly short point to go 30 love, two fingers up. 
and never got closer than than the two fingers. Medvedev breaks back. We go five all. That, that was where I reminded you of uh, Djokovic and Federer, wasn't mm. it, in 2019? Because that's how it started to feel to me. I I, th- I thought this feels very similar to, well, to Federer having two match points. Can, well, can I... Rafael Nadal felt that way as well, David. Can I allow him to say it in his own words? Because this is what he said uh, to Eurosport after the match of... That those sequence of events late on in the fifth set, after he got <laughs> after he got broken back in the fifth, he said to Eurosport. After that, I said, "Fuck one more time, a break up in the fifth, and I'm gonna lose again, like in 2012, and like in 2017." Uh, Rafael Nadal said, "Fuck on <laughs> on, <laughs> on international TV in the middle of the afternoon." Um, but yeah, you reminded me, Matt, of the fact that in 2012 and in 2017, of course, the famous epic marathon Djokovic final in, in 2012 and that, you know, what felt like at, a time, at the time a throwback final with Federer in 2017. But we, we didn't know then what we know now. <laughs> he was a break up in the fifth set both times and lost it. Yes, we put that on on Twitter and I just got, abused you know people saying read the room matt this is not what we need to know at this time come on but actually yeah hannah had to follow up with with some billy jean content to to soothe people but actually this you know it's interesting to hear nadal mentioning that there you know and i think i think that's important because the fact that this has happened at the australian open i think adds extra significance to Nadal doing what he's done here you know the Australian Open has been a tournament of real pain for Nadal obviously he's won it in the past and and that's great but he has tried and come so close to winning a second Australian Open so many times whether it be injury that's thwarted him you know the back injury against Wawrinka in the final he also had to I think pull out of a match against Chilich, if I remember correctly quite deep in a tournament and He's also been stopped by Djokovic and he's been stopped by Federer in finals, really close finals. And one of the things I love so much about tennis and so much about the Grand Slams is that we, is that we go back to these venues, these physical spaces every year. And, you know, the players return to scenes of their triumphs and scenes of their defeats. And that just adds extra meaning to everything. And, you know, I'm sitting on that court thinking about Nadal losing from a break up in the fifth set twice before in this situation on this very court in this very same physical space and Nadal is thinking about it as well and for him to then rewrite that story and to sort of put a happy ending on it it sort of it doesn't take away those losses and the pain of all those defeats but you know it sort of it reminds you why losses are important as well, I suppose, along the way and why it's all important. And it all feeds into this moment that we got for Nadal today. And he's just so acutely aware of all that history. And I think that's part of what's so emotional about watching him um, sort of do what he did today. He's so acutely aware of the history and respectful of it and yet not not that bothered by his mm. place in it. Mm-hmm. Which is such a unique he balance. Doesn't over it, does he? That's or, his word. Or, or, I don't e- or even, you know, he said today, that is not a thought for me at all. Twenty-one, the 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 race, the the numbers, 
where I end up in terms of the greatest, not even a, not even a thought. And he, he means it. He really, really means that. Um, can anybody remember the final game? What I remember thinking is that his chance had gone kind of that's how I felt I I thought we were seeing Djokovic like defiance from Medvedev and so for Nadal to immediately create another opportunity and break again then I thought what I always pretty much think in these situations is that when you fail to serve it out the first time you'll get it right the second time if you're given another chance you'll learn from the last time and uh and that's how I that's what I said to my wife in the room as we said, I said, I think he'll do it this time, you know, because it's, it can't happen twice is how it felt to me. And I mean, he served it out to love, didn't he? And I mean, and he, and he was peerless in that final game all the way through the final set. Okay. Apart from the games that he did get broken back, but I thought his tennis was completely different to what we'd seen in the other four sets. The other four sets were about conjuring, creating, um, finding different ways to beat an opponent. In in set five, he went back to plan A of hitting the ball, but he was hitting the ball so much more cleanly and with authority and with belief that he could stand toe-to-toe with Medvedev and knock him spark out. That's how it felt to me, is that he, he was just a different man in terms of conviction on his shots, and he didn't look tired. That was the interesting thing, is... It was Medvedev who was fading. Mm. And, uh, I mean, of all the scenarios, based on the the days that have led up to this, the idea that Nadal would outlast Medvedev, which is basically what happened in the end in that fifth set, he he, he was the stronger of the two. And uh, what, a, what a sporting moment that was to, to see him. And, 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 you know, we didn't get his moment of victory on his back. We got a moment of victory, him standing there laughing, at the sheer absurdity of it all, looking at his team as if to say, how the hell has that happened? <laughs> then sort of falling forwards onto his onto his knees. I don't know out of necessity. I don't know whether they actually sort of buckled on him. Um, but it was, it, it was, it was different to any other celebration that we've, we've seen from Nadal. Yeah. And this idea of it being the least plausible way of him winning is very fitting isn't it because just as you said at the start this has been a completely implausible victory on the macro level you know he was on crutches he had covid he didn't even know if he was going to be coming to australia he says it's the most unexpected victory of his career and then on you know at the micro level as well you know even within this tournament i thought he looked pretty done against Shapovalov. I thought he was very, very done, two sets to love down, you know, all, all, all the steps along the way. It's been just so unlikely that he would end up with the trophy. And it was one of one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. You know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what's happened tonight. The way he has pulled that out is... Well, Mary Coelho said to us, it's his legacy match. You know, it's 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 legendary what he did and how he did it. Yeah. <laughs> We're still processing, folks. Um, his press call, I mean, he's going to be still processing for a long time, I think. I mean, there was just this sort of disbelieving grin on his face throughout the press conference, wasn't, wasn't there? I mean, I really think he is going to be... 
it's not that he doesn't believe it in a sort of in that you know I don't know like when Andy Murray won the US Open won his first slam and it was sort of it was all he just looked dazed didn't he it was that it's not that kind of disbelief um I definitely think he's going to in, enjoy it and be able to enjoy it but he just he always finds it funny I think because of as you say how implausible it is but um it was a great press conference exactly as you'd expect and um we're going to play you we're going to play you some some audio from from both of the finalist press conferences actually because they were both pretty arresting in in completely different ways um we'll start with the champion um and uh, it was Simon Briggs actually that asked him in press uh, he said you often say that you have to suffer to win big matches and he asked with your foot and with the time you've been away are you suffering even more than usual tonight and this is what Nadal had to say I was not ready physically for uh, for the for this kind of battles honestly no I didn't practice uh, enough to to be ready for for it but uh, tonight have been very special I give it everything that I I have inside <laughs> believe me I am yeah Super, super tired in all ways. Uh, I even can't celebrate. <laughs> uh, but it was the day to give everything. You know? So uh, I enjoy it. I enjoyed the fight. I enjoyed the, the motions. And uh, at the end, have this trophy with me means means everything today. You know? So uh, I can't be happier. And uh, I just want to... To recover a little bit and uh, enjoy a little bit, yeah. Three more in the room, Catherine. Congratulations. Thank you so um, much. Just in terms of the foot, um, how painful is it? How painful was it over the latter stages of that match? Tonight, I was no pain at all. No, you know, I was able to, as you can see, I was able to run. Uh, without limitations. I don't know what can happen tomorrow, but I feel lucky that uh, that I was I was able to play, uh, to feel free to play tennis, to just play tennis. No, and uh, that's an amazing feeling. Uh, I know uh, things can change because, uh, as I explained the other day, uh, my injury is difficult to fix. Impossible, by the way. <laughs> but... Uh, But I was able to play for one month, and <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, something unexpected, something that gives me plenty of energy to to keep going. And uh, I just want uh, to enjoy this moment, and of course, try to keep going. You know, I I, I really enjoy it, the feeling to be back on on the tour, and I I'm gonna try to 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 follow my my personal calendar. Super super tired in all ways. <laughs> Is is a great um, summary of the of the post final uh, experience. He said in Spanish, "Estaba hecho polvo," which is sort of literally he was made of dust by the end. It just means <laughs> just means to be completely exhausted. Yeah, I mean, amazing what he said about the foot, though. I mean, I was convinced that he was a. It, in agony in that match with with the foot that's what I'd that was the story that I had in in my head and I think he he was in a type of physical agony but I it obviously wasn't specifically the foot I mean how amazing um 
for him to be saying that he didn't feel it. Now, whether that's, you know, adrenaline. Adrenaline is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I hope, I hope that he can walk tomorrow. Um, Yeah, but, but, you know, he's going to take whatever time he needs to recover, isn't he? And um, my goodness me, we are not going to do forward-looking in this podcast. We're not going to say what now. We're not going to say, is he going to win the French um, look, we will do that. We will get carried away and make big sweeping predictions about the goat race and all of that. Of course, we're going to end up doing that at some stage st- soon on the podcast. It just doesn't feel like tonight is quite the night for that. We have got an Australian Open uh, review show for Friends of the Pod, uh, which will be up in the next couple of days. But still on this show, we need to talk about the beaten finalist Daniil Medvedev. Yeah, can I just say one thing more on Nadal? Just, I think, is something very significant he's achieved tonight. Um, in addition to the 21st Grand Slam, he's now got each slam twice. And I think that's massive. You know, I think we talked about it when when Novak Djokovic did it at the French Open last year. Nadal's now done it as well. And look, don't want to get into goat debate and all of that but that is something which separates them from if, it feels Federer like you're and... dipping a toe into the goat debate matt <laughs> look it's almost impossible not to look we've sort of the whole way with the goat with the with the big three it's it's felt like Wimbledon 2008 was was the greatest sort of moment that they would have and then it was the australian open 2012 when you know the really long final which which Djokovic won. And then it was 2017 Australian Open with the throwback. And and then it was Nadal getting to 20 and at Roland Garros. And then it was Djokovic beating Nadal at Roland Garros last year. And, and now it feels like this has sort of topped the lot. It, it, we can't, you know, this, this, this story isn't finished yet. This race isn't run yet. But so that's why you shouldn't go into all of that. But I do think that is significant that, that Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal have both won every slam twice. Like that's that's just something you can't ignore. Well, consider that a tease for f- future goat debates uh, to come on the tennis podcast and wild speculation about what the future will hold for those three extraordinary athletes. Both Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic have done. Instagram posts praising Rafael Nadal. I mean, how how could how could you not um, tonight? So that's a, that's a classy move from them both. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Daniil Medvedev, folks, I feel for him a lot tonight. I really, really do. I mean, not just because of the bare facts of losing from, from two sets to love up. I mean, we're going to hear from him and, and we're going to hear from the horse's mouth about how he feels. And I think on the tennis front, he he doesn't feel too terrible about it. I think he has so much respect for Nadal and, and actually was quite in awe of what Nadal did tonight. I think that will help him find a peace with the result. Um, but he found it an extremely difficult experience and he made no secret of the fact that that was because of the crowd. And look, we'll weigh in on our feelings about that, but I think first and foremost we should hear um, the pretty startling words that Daniil Medvedev had to say in press. He kicked off with with a statement to the room um, and then I later was able to to follow up with with a question of my own. This is what Daniil Medvedev had to say. It's going to be a little bit of a new press conference because I'm going to start with a short or long, I don't know, I'll try to keep it short, story of a young kid who dreamed about, about big things in tennis. So when I picked up a record when I was six years old, I mean, then the time goes fast when you're like 12. I was just, you know, practicing, playing some Russian tournaments. And of course, you're watching Grand Slams on the TV, big, big stars playing, fans supporting. And you dream of being there. Um, start playing some uh, Tennis Europe tournaments. There are, I actually remember playing Youth Olympic Games. I think it was called like Youth Olympic Festival or whatever. I made final and it was cool. We had like a center court and I think it was in Turkey. I would say there was maybe 1,000 people, 2,000, and it was really cool. It was amazing to, to be there, and that's uh, the moments where you dream of, yeah, bigger stages. So then I think the big part for every junior is playing a junior Grand Slam. That's where you can see the pros in US Open. You actually uh, eat in the restaurant with them and some small like things like this. There are people coming to support you, even if probably they don't really know who you are, but there are people supporting juniors, and it's great moments. Um and that's that's a moment where you're like, wow, I want to be there in this uh, in this Grand Slams playing, uh, yeah, against the best uh, people in the world. I remember when I went to, to US Open, I saw John Isner passing by, and I was like, wow, he's so huge, he's bigger than on uh, on the TV, and it's just uh, nice moments. Um, then I don't know, a lot of futures, a lot of challengers try to climb your way up. You start playing uh, biggest tournaments, and. Uh, uh, 
there are some moments in my career where I think this kid was doubting if he should continue to dream about these big things or not. I remember one, it was uh, I lost a really tough match uh, two times in Roland Garros, actually, and I speak French. And I feel like in my age, I was maybe top five at this moment or something like this, which is not bad. And especially we have a huge generation, as you can see right now, a lot of top 10 players and stuff like this. And I remember I lost to Benjamin Bonzi, who's in top 100 now. Uh, there was, if I'm not mistaken, one Russian journalist in the room. I was like, really? It's a Grand Slam? Or like I was, I think I was close to being top 50, really young. I was like, okay, that's surprising. Um, I think the journalist was Russian, so we talked for like five minutes, and I like talking to journalists. Then I remember a tough loss to Pierre Gerbert, 2-0 up in the sets. Uh, actually, amazing match. He played amazing. Uh, and I like these matches. That's why I like tennis. Um, I, I was on the edge of breaking top 10. Um, again, in my age, I think I would be like top three. There would probably be Zverev and even maybe top two. Dominic, of course, but he's a little bit older. Uh, I came in the press. I was a little bit yeah, frustrated with the fans and everything. And so um, it's funny because I wanted to keep it short. So I wanted to like play, like answer with two words or anything. There was one journalist. Um, I think Italian, he asked me something. I answered two words. No more question. There were some Russians. They asked me some things. Again, a kid was doubting if he should continue of dreaming big. And I'm not going to explain why exactly. But today, uh, during the match, I understood that I'm going to play uh, tennis. <laughs> Actually, it's funny because uh, I was talking about journalists, but I really like talking to you guys. I mean, I think you can see it. So it's, uh, that's not really the point. I'm just talking about few moments where the kid stopped dreaming. And today was one of them. I'm not going to really tell why. So from now on, I'm playing for myself, for my family, to provide my family. Um, for people that trust in me, uh, of course, for all the Russians, because I feel a lot of support there. Um, I'm going to save it like this. So if, if there is a tournament on hard courts in Moscow uh, before uh, Roland Garros or Wimbledon, I'm going to go there, even if I miss a Wimbledon or Roland Garros or whatever. Um, the kid stopped dreaming. The kid uh, is going to play for himself. And uh, that's it. That's my story. Thanks for listening, guys. Now I can we can go to questions about tennis or anything. Congratulations on your tournament. Thanks a lot. Um, how much of what you're feeling tonight and the story that you've just told were you feeling before tonight, or is it just about? Not tonight? not much. As I said, you know, there were some moments of in my career where I could adapt. Ah, oh, yeah, I actually forgot to tell in my story. So about the kid. So when I also started to get just a little bit higher, like top 20, top 30, you know, start to play Novak, Roger, Rafa, uh, we made some tough matches. I, I haven't beat them yet. And there was a lot of talks. I remember, I don't think there is that much right now, but I remember there were a lot of talks like young generation should do better or or there were talks like people saying we really want young generation to go uh, for it, to, to be better, to be stronger. And I was like pumped up. I was like, yeah, let's try, you know, to, to, to give them hard time and everything. Well, I guess these people were lying because, yeah, every time uh, I stepped on the court in these big matches, I, I really didn't see much people who wanted me to win. So it's not just tonight, you're 
it's a, it's a cumulative. Yeah, it's a, it's a cumulative. Uh, but tonight was uh, like the epopee or how, how you call it, like the top of the mountain. It was a pretty astonishing moment when he when he came into press and, and delivered that story. Um, you know, bits of it are, are, are rambling and a bit sort of incoherent. He was, in the moment, he was hugely emotional. Um, there was actually a... <laughs> A sort of an extremely farcical moment for all of us before he came into press. So his press conference was called, um, and we were all there, sort of taking our seats in in the room. And um, <laughs> lots of the media assistants are handing out glasses of champagne as they do for the press conference of the of the champion, um, because Medvedev and Rafa were coming back to back. Um, and they'd obviously not not because Medvedev was a bit late, so actually he was closer to Nadal's time slot than Medvedev's. Completely innocent mistake, but Medvedev is sort of moments away, <laughs> and champagne is being distributed. Um, luckily, the champagne was hidden. I think there might have been one or two rogue glasses under seats, um, but it, <laughs> I don't think Daniil Medvedev ever caught sight of a glass of champagne. Thank. Goodness, or well, they probably would have taken that quite well, to be honest. Um, but oh, that made me feel really sad. Um, what Daniel Medvedev had to say tonight, you know, irritable Medvedev, I love, um, you know, slightly on the edge Medvedev, I love, but sad Medvedev, disillusioned Medvedev is a really tough one to take and I don't know where to come down on this because look there was the there was the for me um obviously I wasn't hearing everything that the players were hearing in the crowd there was the odd over the line moment with with cheer, cheering or crying out between serves or just as players were going to serve there was a bit of that it didn't feel like there was massive malice in any of it um there was no suing tonight, which was enjoyable. I mean, Daniil Medvedev was booed onto court. Um, that was rough, I thought. Yeah, that was rough. And I, at the time, I thought it was pantomime Um But mm. I do think there is a bit of a disconnect here um, with the Australian crowd and Daniil Medvedev. It does feel different to how the New York crowd booed him and had that love-hate relationship with him a few years ago, and that's obviously continued and become a whole thing. I don't think they hate him. I, I really don't. I don't think they get it. Um, maybe it's, you know, the the irony of it all, the irreverence. I, I don't know. Maybe they're just not familiar enough with him. Um, but in terms of whether he was treated poorly by them tonight, other than the booing onto court... Um, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, for me, it felt like a mostly extremely positive energy towards Rafael Nadal. And I feel two things about that. I feel like Daniil Medvedev's response to it is entirely human and entirely understandable and entirely how I would feel. I would lose my mind if I had that many people cheering against me that vociferously in sort of the biggest moment of my life. I wouldn't cope with that. I would need therapy for the rest of my life or more therapy for the rest of my life. Awful, absolutely unimaginably 
difficult. I think, you know, the human condition is to find that difficult. But I also think it was entirely human of the crowd to be willing for Nadal in the way that they were with this appreciation of the story um, and the significance and the history of it all. Um, so I think <laughs> I, I, I'm not reaching a conclusion, but I just, I feel for him. I don't think he's, I don't think he's wrong. Um, I hope that he will change his mind about what he's, what he said tonight. I don't know. What are your feelings? I feel very similarly. I feel very sad for Medvedev. Um, you know, I've heard his story now <laughs> a couple of times and I'm still not entirely sure I can fully make sense of it or really know what he's getting at. It it, it I- does seem to me that there's sort of three different bits. I think your your follow-up question and his clarification there was quite revealing as well. Um, it seems that he. It seems that not having people take interest in him from sort of years back has has sort of damaged him a little bit, or sort of he he didn't like that. That was a that was a moment where the the sort of dream started dying, and then the crowd support, obviously, and then also this this idea that tennis was waiting for someone else to come through or men's tennis, someone else to come through and he's the guy. And yet he doesn't feel like he's getting the love and appreciation that he deserves perhaps. So I think there's lots of different factors at play, but just, just him saying, you know, when I get to 30, I'm not sure I'm going to want to be playing tennis anymore. And the, you know, I'm, you know, the kid inside me has stopped dreaming. Those are, those are very sad things to hear, mm. I think. And yeah, I, I think it will take a little while for me to really come to understand fully what he's talking about there. But that's my impression of it just in the moment now. And yeah, I mean, I hope some of it for him was an in the moment reaction, you know, a sort of mm. a reaction to, yeah, a very tough experience generally not just defeat but just as you said just being in that atmosphere was obviously difficult for him i i felt his reaction was the more the sort of understandable and honest version of of what i imagine was really going on inside for novak Djokovic all those times he played roger federer and had the crowd so against him and so in federer's corner and and actually probably worse behaved because particularly at the u.s open they were deliberately trying to get in the way and and I think that that's one of the reasons Djokovic has shown his greatness over the years the fact that he still won and he still managed to find a way and uh, and and seemingly didn't let that get to him but I'm sure it did um Medvedev just fronted up and and told us what what that feels like tonight I think and and look he's he's done an amazing job of being this pantomime villain and and taking them on over the years and 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 giving us some of our favorite moments on the tennis podcast really with his reactions and and you know there is a bit of me that thinks well hold on is is he is he is this real is he teasing us here is is he sort of laying this on and actually the reality is he doesn't mind at all well no I think he I think he 
I think he he's found a way over the years to to make fun of it all and use it as fuel and and shown a defiance. But actually, I think he doesn't doesn't really get it over the years. I don't think he does understand why why he's not getting the support. And Djokovic has never understood why am I not getting the support? And then suddenly Djokovic did when it was him showing his vulnerability and being older and losing. And it will come to Daniel Medvedev in time too probably once all these guys have gone because that's just how it ends up working but you know he did sound pretty crestfallen and it may well just be an in the moment thing but um i mean it it led to him delivering the most fantastic little troll of his own at the end of his speech didn't it where he he just said you know and one final thing and that final thing always always means and thank you the crowd and he just said thank you to my team again and just it, it was, a, and it was that said everything sensationally delivered it was absolutely wonderful brilliant. timing yeah. and delivery yeah and but i yeah, just yeah i mean i think it was a wonderful speech really i mm. mean it was it was all over the shop i agree but the way that you followed up catherine enabled us to understand the hurt inside the the i mean i don't i agree with you i do not know how even if people weren't like being completely obstructive and I think he felt they were but at the very least I do something great and it's silence and I miss a shot and the roof comes off I'm struggling even just thinking about that from his perspective how do you handle that that isn't fair is it it is fair because that's the 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 sport you know and crowds can choose who they want Oh, my word, just mentally, how do you cope with that? And I I think uh, partly what I was getting at with the cumulative thing is that, you know, maybe you can just put it aside as a one-off today and go, look, I'm facing Nadal, one of the most loved, adored, unique, special athletes the sport has ever seen. Um, but in the previous round, he was playing Stefano Tsitsipas, one of his contemporaries, one of the other players that has also been bigged up as the next generation, etc., etc. sort of comparable in lots of ways. And Tsitsipas had the very heavy support. Now, I think that is largely down to the fact that there is this enormous great community in in Melbourne mm. um, and they're extremely vocal and that creates a sort of just an atmosphere in the crowd so that even those that aren't specifically, you know, Greek and cheering for, for Medvedev, for Tsitsipas rather, you get caught up in it. But that's sort of what I was getting, you know, he's he's sort of waiting for the matchup going, okay, well, maybe it'll be this one that they that they go for me. And it just never really happened. It did it in the previous round. It was Felix auger Lassim who was trying to pull off the upset. They were going for the underdog, this young kid mm. trying to pull something off. And I do, personally, I think he deserves better he does he does deserve crowd support but then equally i can't fault the crowd in each of those individual circumstances no. he was not, a bit naive not really i think him. um bit, bit but, naive that he thought he was going to get the support mm. i think um but 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 i also feel that um i think i think what worked in new york is that everybody cheered for nadal but then everybody was on his side at the end you mm. know once he gave his speech and he never quite got there this time did he all the way through the tournament with Korea was trying to give him chances in a way in the interviews to to win them over and but you know his natural reaction is when they're against me is to sort of you know sarcastically applaud them and again i totally understand that mentality but the crowd almost seemed to like 
take that personally mm. in Australia and say, well, don't you give me back chat. You know, I'm allowed to boo you, but you can't give me any back. That's how it came across. Mm. I just hope, just just hang in there, Daniil, if you're listening. You, you, you will get there with crowds in the end, you will. You're too cool and interesting and funny and all the rest of it not to. He'll, he'll get there. Just please don't lose the faith. <laughs> we need you, Daniil. We need you, Daniil. Tennis, tennis needs you, I think. Um, and look, we are going to revel in the joy of these extraordinary, legendary athletes um, at the top of the sport for as long as we can. But they won't be around forever. They probably won't be around for much longer. And we really will need Medvedev and, and the rest of them when that is the case. And I think the good news is that, as far as I'm aware, there aren't any hard court tournaments in Moscow the week before Wimbledon. <laughs> yes. might, one might pop up now, though. Maybe it will. <laughs> it might just Moscow be Medvedev and then sort of wild cards going begging. Um, Moscow one. Um, it has just started getting light in Melbourne, David. <laughs> The sun. What a depressing <laughs> moment. The sun is rising. Um, goodness me. Does anybody have anything further to add about what we've seen tonight, this morning, earlier on today, whenever it might have been? Any further comments? How big's the asterisk? Non existent. Non existent. I hate the question. I understand why you've asked it. I was I was asked it on the telly this morning, but for me, non-existent. For you, David? I mean, look, ultimately, UB2 is in front of you and he has no control over whether Novak Djokovic or Roger Federer or anybody else is in the draw. So ultimately, yeah, it's non-existent in terms of his achievement is his achievement and there is no dilution of it as far as I'm concerned um I think I still I can't forget about it I can't forget about it totally in the moment I mean two weeks ago Novak Djokovic was deported um it's still I can't believe that happened but it did happen and then we and then a tennis tournament happened and Rafael Nadal won it and ultimately that's that's the end yeah I see it as a factor but a but an asterisk has such a negative connotation it sort of is detracting from an mm. achievement just, and this just, doesn't it doesn't detract from Nadal's achievement for me at all just no. just as no, Nadal losing to Sodling in 2009 was a massive factor in the in Federer completing the career slam absolutely it is not an asterisk yeah. No, I, I agree. For me, it's, I, a, I do it's, agree. A, it's a similar situation. Yeah. I don't, I don't I, give Dominic Thiem an asterisk ultimately either. He won the tournament that he was totally. tasked with winning. Totally. That's the end of it, really. Yeah, and I think just, just to extend that um, surdling at the French Open, I think Novak Djokovic's win at the French Open last year perhaps was an even greater achievement than his than his French Open in 2016 because he beat Nadal. Perhaps I think I think it I think it elevates what he did, but it doesn't 
it, it doesn't mean that his win in 2016 has an asterisk because Nadal pulled out of that tournament with a wrist injury. And and it doesn't mean that last year's French Open win has an asterisk because maybe Nadal's foot wasn't right. Totally. You know, I'd, I, I, I think, yeah, maybe it wasn't. But the guy still hung around with him so long that eventually Nadal physically faltered and Djokovic deservedly won that tournament. So, yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, I, I, I agree. But I think it's it's right to 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 raise it. The women's doubles title uh, was won about 400 years ago now by Barbora Krejcikova and Katerina Siniakova. They beat uh, Beatrice Haddad-Meyer and Anna Danilina, a six seven six four six four. It was a brilliant match, actually. Um, it was won on a critique of a moon ball. If you get the opportunity to ma- watch match point, um, then I would highly suggest doing so. It was brilliant. Uh, and now, just like Ash Barty, Krejcikova and Siniakova are a U.S. Open away from completing a career slam. So Ooh, I wonder how they feel mu- about the ball. Must find out how they feel about the U.S. Open balls. Um, that'll be a priority for another time. Uh, very quickly going to mention, because we didn't have time to yesterday. I mean, we don't really have time today. We're way over time, but um, I'm sure you'll understand why. Um, we just don't want to go to bed, ever, apparently. Well, the um, <laughs> the junior titles yesterday. This one's allowed to go long. Um, I tell you this because, you know, it's useful to be able to say, oh, I know that name, you know, when they pop up winning a, Beating somebody big in a in in a few years' time or whenever it might be, the girls' title with both the titles, in fact, were won by uh, the top seeds. The girls was won by the Croatian Petra Marcinko. She beat the Belgian Sofia Kostilas seven five six two. Um, so relatively drama free in the girls' final. Then there was the boys' final, which was anything but drama free. Uh, Bruno Kuzuhara of the United States beat the Czech. Jakub Menchik, 7-6, in three hours and 43 minutes. And there was serious drama on match point, Matt. In fact, really distressing drama. Yeah, in fact, throughout the latter stages of that final set, Menchik was really struggling physically and, you know, he just... He, he wasn't able to serve before the shot clock had counted down and that sort of thing. The umpire was having to give him time warnings and violations, which felt really sort of harsh, but that was just the rule because he was he was just hurting so much. And yeah, on, on, on match point, he double faulted and collapsed to the ground immediately and Kuzahara went straight round the other side of the net and checked he was okay and then there was this just this extraordinary scene of Kuzahara lovely moment of sportsmanship checking he was okay and then sort of saluting the crowd to take the applause while they were bringing on a wheelchair for men sick in the background and a, and a sort of team of medics attending to him on the ground it was I mean I've never seen anything like it to be honest and men sick men sick couldn't couldn't stay on court for the trophy ceremony Post match, he was it was just extraordinary, extraordinary scenes, and um, you know I think he's he's a great, great talent. So it was a real sort of shame that it finished in that way, and it's kind of a shame for Kusahara as well. But mm. 
he gave a speech in English, obviously, and also in Japanese and in Portuguese because he's got Japanese and Brazilian heritage. Mm, you can imagine sort of agent. I mean, I'm sure he already has an agent, but that's the sort of thing that makes agents' eyes light up, isn't it? Marketable is the horrible word that would be mm. used about somebody um, somebody with appeal in different markets. I'm making it worse and more gross <laughs> anyway. He seems a lovely lad. And, uh, yeah, names for the future, Marchinko and Kuzuhara. And that, folks, I think is a wrap on the Australian Open 2022. It is just fully light outside our living room window. Um, it's just the birds are chirping. The sun is about to poke through the clouds. It's all very weird. But um, if anything was going to send our body clock into total disarray, I'm very glad it was the experience that we had last night and in the very early hours of this morning. I will never forget it. And uh, I'm glad that it was able to happen and extremely grateful to the friends of the podcast that made it happen. And I hope that our being here, as well as being tremendously fun for us, um, I won't pretend it hasn't been, but I hope it has elevated the listening experience uh, for all of you as well. So um, thank you. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure to have Charlie as our Australian Open mascot. Charlie, we love you. You have done us proud. You're great. And just because you're no longer our mascot doesn't mean you can't continue to send us content. Please keep the content coming. Uh, Billy Jean watched the entirety of the match this evening. It kept her from, from going for a walk. In fact, my brother... Uh, and his girlfriend, Millie, said they had to pull the curtains so she couldn't see what lovely walking weather it was outside. <laughs> um, Billie Jean is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. David, Matt and myself, we have mascots. We have Darwin. I have Carter. And Matt has Gerald the cat. Sorry, you have Darwin, David, not we. He's all yours. Yeah. Uh yeah. We have our two executive producers, Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner. They are both top blokes. And we have three final Australian Open shout outs, Matt. Yes, we have Norton Rappaport from San Diego, California. Oh, I've been there. <laughs> Lovely. Um, wow, what a name. Yes, Norton has a beagle called, oh, called Z. Like Charlie? Mm. Oh, well, that's lovely. Is there a picture of Z? We will request one. Yes, okay. Consider this the request. Yes, Norton. please send us Z content, Norton. And right, thank Norton. you very much for your support. Yeah. We have Carolyn Koo from <sighs> Somers, New York. Hi, Carolyn. Well, I've been to New York, but I've not. I assume that means New York State. Yes. How are we spelling Somers? S O M E R S, pronounced. Oh, she Somers. said. Oh. Mm. Interesting. Okay. And Carolyn says, "I've been a tennis fan since my dad took me to my first U.S. Open in 1981. The first match I ever saw there was John McEnroe defeating Ramesh Krishnan in the quarterfinals." 
back when the old Louis Armstrong was the main stadium. The US Open is so much fancier now. Mm. Yep. No notes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Carolyn. Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. And final shout-out of the Australian Open is Kerry Ward from Canberra, who said lots of lovely things about the show, which I won't sort of uh, impose on everyone. (laughs) But she did say, she did say, I got a new poodle puppy, Leo, about the same time that Catherine got Billie Jean and Leo always gives Billie Jean a woof if he hears her on the pod. We love that. Marvellous. Kerry, please send Leo content. Um, yeah, and it, it, it please, it, animal content is encouraged with shout out detail. If that's not clear, then I don't know what I've been doing on these podcasts. Any pics of vigil? Um, yes, yes, absolutely. So, Kerry, thank you very much. You are our final shout out of this 2022 Australian Open. It has been a wild, wild ride. <laughs> We will be reflecting on the whole thing with the benefit of a tiny amount of of hindsight and uh, time to think about it all uh, in our Australian Open review show, which will be available to friends of the tennis podcast. Uh, and that'll be up in the next couple of days. So look out for that. If you want to become a friend of the tennis podcast, then the link to do so is is in our show notes. If you just want to support us, if you just want to be in the gang, then it's absolutely worthwhile. I promise you, if you want to get yourself an intro or a shout out, those options are available too. And just before we go, there are a few people that we want to thank as well who have made this not only possible, but extremely pleasurable for us over the last few weeks. Um, It takes an increasing number of people to... Uh, make the tennis podcast happen, basically, and um, to to grease the um, ever thirsty wheels of the pod. Uh, and those people are Andrew and Hannah that have just both done an absolutely stunning work with our Twitter. They are just gems, and we're so lucky to have them both. Patrick, um, who's always grumpy with me, but I know he loves me anyway. Uh, he has been doing our editing and he is also, in his own special way, a gem. Uh, Gorana obviously is a gem. Uh, that's David's wife, am I allowed to say that? But yeah. also our lovely designer. Um, and Woolly, Sarah Woolland, uh, who does all sorts of things for us, um, including giving Patrick aggro on my behalf in various <laughs> WhatsApp groups. So much appreciated to Willie and the whole team that makes it happen. I hope you've enjoyed this two-week circus of life. We'll speak to you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.